0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Friend Diagram. This is the podcast where two friends catch up and find common ground between their favorite media.
1: I'm Remy. I'm Kat. And today, we'll be comparing notes on the 1971 film Wake and Fright and the 2022 Netflix series The Sandman. Warning. Spoilers ahead. (sighs) We're back.
0: We're back. It feels like it's been a long time, but it's just been a normal amount of time, right? Yeah. I think we've just been through emotional roller coasters in the past week.
1: Yeah, this week was strange.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I finally got... We're gonna... We have a place to live. Oh, (laughs) yeah, When we move in two weeks. Nice! So, that's good. Yeah, we got approved for an apartment and signed the lease and put down the deposit and arranged the movers, so... Yeah, That's in great. less than two weeks now, so <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting out of this apartment. Things are falling apart by the minute, Oh no! and it's, it just sucks. The new one's going to be much better, I think.
1: Nice. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Is it still like a two-bedroom type place? Yes. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, this week has been weird, but I got a lot of editing done, so... I felt good about that. I edited two whole episodes this week, and we did a double feature, so that was fun. I was super excited uh-huh. about that.
0: Yeah, that was lightning fast editing this week.
1: Yeah, I, I wasn't feeling great, so I like went home, laid in bed, and did some editing here and there, so. Very cool. That's nice. And we're
0: kind of switching roles this week in that you're <laughs> highlighting a brand new well, not a brand new property, but a brand new
1: adaptation.
0: Adaptation mm-hmm. of a property, and I'm covering something much older. Yeah, so that's a nice little fun reversal.
1: Yeah, I think I texted you earlier in the week. I was like, "You're going to be so proud of me. I've got something
0: hot <laughs> off the press this week." So I know, and I was. I've been thinking about doing Wake and Fright mm-hmm. for several weeks. I think about Wake and Fright all the time, <laughs> just at baseline, mm-hmm. but I I didn't have anything brand new this week for the first week in a while mm-hmm. that I urgently wanted to cover, and I was like, oh, maybe it's, maybe it's time to finally talk about Wake and Fright, and I was considering maybe waiting to keep it for the fall, mm-hmm. because some people consider it in the horror slash thriller genre but I was like no way Wicked Fright is a year-long <laughs> a year-long year gem you can watch it any season
1: yeah and by the time this episode gets edited and it'll probably be sometime in September so yeah it'll be fall early fall get us in the mood for some yeah spooks
0: I know. I think you could argue it's actually a Christmas movie, which is even better.
1: Ooh, I love a good Christmas film.
0: (laughs) I hate Christmas films. This is the only one I like.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How was your week? Did you have a good week?
0: It was fine. Um, Getting the apartment settled was the major stressor, so now that that's out of the way, I can go back to thinking about work. (laughs) And stuff like that. So, yeah, it was almost nice to have a distraction of mm-hmm. some import for a while. But yeah. I did get a good amount of writing done nice. of, on my own personal project. So that was good. I feel like things are coming together with that. I think I'm more than halfway done, actually. Yay! Based on my projections of what the word count will be. Mm-hmm. So that is exciting. It Yay. feels like if I got this far... I can certainly finish it.
1: Oh yeah, that's never been a doubt in my mind.
0: Yeah, but it was it was a it was a weird week. Yeah, also weird for me.
1: Mm, that's how it be sometimes. Yeah, I'm so excited for my trip. Not a vacation, but working remotely for a week and taking like a mini vacation to visit the city. So that feels exciting. And yeah, yeah, just. I'm planning to rewatch one of the things I'd like to cover for Spooky Season, so I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to that immensely. Yeah, I've
0: been curating my list, my top five list of nice underappreciated Spooky Season
1: treats. Yeah. Should we get into it?
0: Sure, let's start. So I'm going first this week, and my favorite media that I'm talking about today is... A film from 1971 called Wake in Fright. It's directed by Ted Kotchiff and it was adapted from a novel by Kenneth Cook. And this is a film that I saw for the first time, I want to say at least it was within the past two years. And the first time I saw it, well, actually, I guess I should preface this by saying I think this is a an underseen film
1: in general,
0: and it's one of the most classic and celebrated films in Australian cinema. And it came out in 1971, but wasn't released on video for a long time. Uh, there was something that happened where the masters for the film were missing for decades. And so it had kind of a a poor reception in Australia uh, because of the content and the way Australians were portrayed in the film. Mm -hmm. And I think between that and the fact that the Masters were missing for a long time and it wasn't released on video, it kind of got forgotten for a few decades until it was re-released in 2009. And since then people have started to appreciate it more that it's available. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost a lost classic for a long time, but now, now it's back. And so I think that's really exciting. And I wanted to talk about this film, not just because I think it's underseen, but because it's a fascinating film to watch And the first time I watched it, I didn't know what to make of it or how I felt about it right away. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's really hard to describe in that you are watching this man, his, the character's name, the main character's name is John Grant, and he's played by Gary Bond. And he's a British man who's working as a school teacher in the Australian Outback. So he has signed some sort of contract with the Australian government where he does teaching for children in rural communities for two years and then, uh, I don't even know what he gets out of it at the end, mm-hmm. but he's basically locked into this contract where he's stuck in this very, very small for two years, and he's very dissatisfied with being stuck in that place. And the story takes place right around the Christmas holidays break. So you see him dismissing the school children for the holidays break, and... Then his plan is to go to Sydney to see his girlfriend for holiday break. Hmm. And he's really excited to get out of that really small town. It, uh, by all appearances, only has perhaps two buildings, which is the schoolhouse and then the hotel that he lives in. (laughs) There might be more, (laughs) but that's all you see of it. Yeah, And it's just this small town in this big, dusty, expansive uh desert-like setting, and he leaves on the train to travel to Sydney, and he's so far away that he has to stop over in another town overnight, and then catch the next train to finish the the trip to get to Sydney the next day. And the town that he stops in is called Bundanyaba. It's a, a fictional name for the purposes of the film, but everyone calls it the Yaba, <laughs> And so basically all of the rest of the movie takes place in the Yaba, mm-hmm. And he stops off in this town and gets a hotel room for the night. And all of these, uh, this long string of events takes place that basically results in him making decisions that trap him in that town. So he never gets back on track to go to Sydney for the break Hmm. and it's basically him trying to survive being in this town and get out of this town and he goes through just an incredible journey of a personhood and a a dire transformation during his time in the Yabba
1: Hmm.
0: and so he, <laughs> there, it's just it's so hard to describe because you see all of these things taking place on screen and you understand them at face value. You're like, yes, I see what these men are doing and I understand it. But it takes a long time to digest what it all means. And because I enjoy mulling things over and thinking about them, I came to really love this film days after I watched it for the first time. And a lot of that is because Will and I talked about it extensively after we watched it, because he had a lot of great interpretations of what might have been happening.
1: And... Did you both watch it for the first yes, time? Yes,
0: correct. Yeah, we both watched it for the first time together. And then he told me some of like his Jungian interpretations of what might mm-hmm. be happening. And I talked about what I thought might be happening. And then I think a few weeks went by, and in conversation, I said something like, Yeah, I still keep thinking about Wake and Fright like every day. And he was like, Me too. I think about it all the time. Wow. And so we watched it again and talked about it more. And then it just sort of became this recurring tradition where every few months, We're just in a mood and we're like, I think it's time to watch Wake and Fright. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the striking features of this film is just the absolutely superhuman, immense volume of beer that is consumed (laughs) on screen throughout the film. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know about other people, but when I watch it and when Will watches it, immediately we're like, God, we gotta have a beer. Like, we need a beer. Like, oh, it looks so appetizing because this is happening at Christmas time in Australia, which is the peak of summer. Mm -hmm. There's no air conditioning to be seen in this town. Mm -hmm. Everyone is sweating and just absolutely suffering under a blanket of heat and there also seems to be no drinking water to be found in the yabba either you just drink beer
1: (laughs) very hydrating very healthy
0: there's just beer and steak essentially and so it always puts me in the mood for beer and there's this one character in the movie his name is tim hines and the main character uh, finds him in a bar. They go to many bars, but he finds him early on in one of the bars. And Tim Hines is drinking beer with tomato juice. And so now that's the official drink of watching Wake and Fright in our household, is you have to have beer and tomato juice to really get in the, the Wake and Fright <laughs> frame of mind. And it's just an all-around good time.
1: Tomato juice is good for you.
0: yeah that's not so bad yeah so that's kind of my experience with how this film has recurred in my life um I just watched it again today in preparation for this and I I every time I watch it I have some new perspective on what it might be about and also other films it may have influenced Mm -hmm. like today I was watching it and I, during several scenes, I was thinking, "Wow, this reminds me very much of the lighthouse, mm-hmm. uh, the Robert Eggers movie, especially towards the end of this film." And I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever if, if he took some amount of inspiration from the way the descent into madness was portrayed mm. in *Wake and Fright* and how symbolism being intercut with that descent yeah um, can play out on screen so that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of the vibe but basically the main trajectory of the film is that john grant the main character the school teacher gets mm-hmm. to the yaba and he's there supposed to just be there for a night and kind of goes out on the town even though it's like quite a small town he goes around and goes to a bar and this policeman takes an interest in him probably because he's the only stranger in the whole bar mm-hmm. and gives him a little bit of an introduction to what it's like in the Yaba and what their customs are things of that nature Uh, So, for example, you should never, ever turn down a drink if someone offers it to you. And if they want to get another round, you need to immediately finish your beer. Even if you have a a full beer, it's time to finish that to go get another. And things like that. So things get out of hand kind of quickly because he's not accustomed to this, Mm -hmm. to this lifestyle. And... At the same time, you can tell through his interactions with the, with the policemen and just the people around him that he definitely looks down on the people in this community, uh, not just because it's a small town and a rural community. And like I think a part of the town's identity is that it was a mining town and some mm-hmm. of the mines have shut down. So it's not an economically prosperous community. But the main character seems to think that he's much more educated and therefore he's somehow above the people in this town that like to spend a lot of time, you know, drinking and just socializing. And living socializing. Their best life. Yeah, exactly. And so you definitely get that sense of him from the beginning. So a lot of the film explores like class politics mm-hmm. and human nature and the nature of chance and things like hedonism as well. Mm. And while he is getting the grand tour from this policeman, he also witnesses a big uh, gathering that is centered on this game, uh, a gambling game. It's called Two Up, I think it's called, that basically just involves someone throwing two coins up in the air and everyone takes bets on whether it'll be heads, heads, tails, tails. And then if it's one each, it's just a watch, a wash. And so he gets involved in this gambling and loses all of his money and oh. then gets stuck in the yaba because he doesn't have money to leave. He doesn't have money to...
1: Use a payphone. Uh, do anything, really. <laughs> Call his girlfriend.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's holiday break, so mm-hmm. the the place in town where he could exchange labor for money is closed for the holiday. So he's just there wandering around... But he's lucky because everyone in the town is very hospitable and they love giving out free drinks and they love inviting you to their house and just having long bouts of socializing. So he kind of moves around between, you know, the tomato juice guy and his friends and the policeman and he just explores a lot more of the town. Through the kindness of the people that are living there, but at the same time, things get more and more out of hand very quickly. Uh, in terms of the obscene amounts of alcohol that people are consuming, and the violence that occurs because of that, and just the the normal habits of the people in the town and though you get a sense of how this guy as an outsider is viewing all of the the choices that people are making and viewing what their normal routines look like from an outside perspective. Hmm. And so basically, it's kind of a hard movie to spoil. I won't give away the main ending, I guess. But the overarching trajectory for the main character is that He kind of lets go of his high horse position Mm -hmm. and starts to embrace the absolute chaos that is around him, both for the better and also definitely for the worse. Mm -hmm. So, just gets involved in an absolutely wild bender with this group of men that go... Like, you can't calculate how much beer they drink. And then drive around out in the desert, and there's this really graphic hunting scene that they go on where they're hunting kangaroos Mm. out in the outback. And that goes on for a while, and they're driving around in a car. It seems very, very dangerous, and it's just a... uh, just a naked display of hedonism mm-hmm. at its core i suppose and see him becoming more and more engaged with these acts of violence and just reckless decision making and been drinking and things like that and he becomes enmeshed in that in that subculture of the town mm-hmm. and in a way he just kind of throws away all of his previous philosophies for life as he embraces this this other way of living and I think well I know that my favorite part of the entire movie is one particular character that he meets and I like this character the most because he's the one of the most interesting fascinating characters in any film that I've seen, but he's also a linchpin of a character in this movie, and I'll explain why that is. Um, the character's name is Doc Titan, so he's the doctor for the town, and he's played by Donald Pleasance, and Donald Pleasance just gives an amazing performance. He is electric in this movie. <sighs> I could watch him play this character all day long. He's fascinating to watch. And he plays this doctor who has been in the YABA for five years now. And he decided to live there because he couldn't sustain being a doctor in Sydney because he's an alcoholic and you can't function in both of those roles in a normal
1: uh, mm-hmm.
0: setting. Mm-hmm. But in the Yaba, he says, like, people scarcely notice because it's so commonplace. Because <laughs> they're so drunk too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's just totally normal. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't use money. He doesn't charge people. They just come to him and, you know, ask for his help. And he gets by... On the kindness of other people in the town. Mm -hmm. And he is totally removed from any normal semblance of like social structure. Mm -hmm. He lives out in a cabin that I guess it has electricity because he has a refrigerator, maybe. But, you know, there's no running water. There's no plumbing. Mm -hmm. And he just subsists on like kangaroo meat and beer and <laughs> doesn't use money and just dispenses the most amazing pieces of wisdom throughout the film like he has just amazing lines i kept writing them down mm-hmm. he is such a fascinating character because it's it's one of those types of characters you know could have been highly high functioning in a specific role if their personality was different Mm -hmm. but because of that they have opted to not be part of mainstream society and instead they acknowledge and recognize that their true nature is better fulfilled in a more obscure existence and i think that's really cool i think um A similar character you could compare him to Nick Cage's character in Pig. Mm. You know how he lives out in the woods. Love that. And was you know like a Michelin star chef or Mm -hmm. something of that nature, and and played that role for a while. But then was like actually I would rather just be left alone and Mm -hmm. do my own thing. It's very similar to that type that kind of vibe. Yeah. So I really think that character is fascinating to watch, but. In terms of the story, he is the undoing of the main character, because for, you know, the first half of the movie or so, the main character is looking down on everyone in the town because they're not as educated as him, Mm -hmm. and they've never been anywhere else. They've never lived in the city like me and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But when he meets Donald Pleasance. He sees a guy who's a doctor, he's clearly very educated, and he worked in the city, and he still chooses to be here. Mm-hmm. And he chooses to live a hedonistic life where he embraces his true nature as a, a base human. And rejects all of the things that the main character stands for. Mm -hmm. And so now the main character can't rationalize that this is, you know, just a class divide or just an education divide. It's really a matter of personal philosophy. Mm -hmm. And once that foot is in the door, that's when his own personal philosophy starts to unravel and he gets closer and closer to the mindset that Donald Pleasance. Uh, has and so that's when the spiral really starts to tighten mm-hmm. and yeah it's wow I just can't get over the performance it's amazing <laughs> and so yeah once those two kind of are in the mix together things get out of hand quickly mm-hmm. but yeah I think there's a lot to unpack and it might not be it might not serve the podcast to unpack all of my favorite quotes because I don't know how meaningful they are outside of the context of the film. Mm-hmm. I think you get the sense of of the character that I'm trying to describe, though. One of the quotes that I wrote down that I think can be interpreted on its own is towards the end when the main character has been kind of fully assimilated into this group of violent men who just went on an absolute rampage and i think there's actually people like brawling behind them and breaking things while they're having this conversation but donald pleasance is talking to the main character and he says that progress is a vanity spawned by fear Mm. and it's sort of it almost comes out of nowhere but he kind of gives these philosophical musings throughout the film and a lot of them have to do with society as a whole. And this is very in keeping with his rejection of modern society, because I think what it means when he says progress is a a vanity spawned by fear is that we as humans, we think that we can distance ourselves from our more like base and violent nature with technological advancement and modernization and everything that comes with it. But all of that distance is actually an illusion and we can never outrun our true nature. Mm -hmm. And that's why he chooses to embrace it rather than put up these false walls that other people do with, you know, fancy things or... jobs with status or things of that nature and I really I really love that part (laughs) I think it's really cool I think he has a lot of very interesting musings throughout the film and yeah and I think it's really fitting that at the end of the movie or near the end of the movie the main character he finds his luggage that he lost a couple of days before And a lot of his luggage is made up of books Mm -hmm. and particularly philosophy books. And he just dumps them on the side of the road and it's illustrating both literally, but also, you know, symbolically that he's abandoning all of his previously held philosophies Mm -hmm. because this has been such a transformative experience for him. And I think There's something that he does. He makes a choice near the end of the movie that Will and I are still debating what it means. But I think near the end of the film, the main character goes through a form of ego death. And that is the only way that he can successfully move on Mm -hmm. from the state that he is in. And yeah, I guess I'll leave it at that so that the rest isn't spoiled but it is such a such a fascinating film and there's just so much to think about and i think it's really cool that they took all the time to restore the film i'm really glad that they did that mm-hmm. in 2009 and i also think it's really fascinating because because of that restoration process and this is one of only two films in existence that have been screened at the Cannes Film Festival twice. Oh. So it was screened at Cannes in 1971 originally, and then also it was brought back again in 2009, which is, like, a huge honor. Wow. And I think it's really interesting because that second screening in 2009, I believe Martin Scorsese had a lot to do with it being selected for that. Mm. And I was reading up because in the, there's a trailer for the film that quotes Martin Scorsese, uh, and (laughs) that the film left him speechless. Mm. And I think that it's really fascinating to me that he enjoyed this film. I'm not surprised by it. I think Anyone that's interested in filmmaking could take a lot from this film, but I was reading a quote on Wikipedia in the reception portion under the Wake and Fright entry, and I couldn't find the actual primary source for this quote, Mm -hmm. but it says, um, Scorsese said, quote, Wake and Fright is a deeply, and I mean deeply unsettling and disturbing movie, I saw it when it premiered at Cannes in 1971 and it left me speechless. Visually, dramatically, atmospherically, and psychologically is beautifully calibrated and it gets under your skin one encounter at a time, right along with the protagonist played by Gary Bond. I'm excited that Waken Fright has been preserved and restored and that it is finally getting the exposure it deserves end quote. And so I think that really sums up a lot of good things about the movie. But it is important to note that there is a lot of graphic and disturbing violence in it, especially towards animals. Mm. So that's definitely something that you could should consider before watching it, if that's something that you are sensitive to. And there's actually like a special producer's note at the end of the film, explaining that the the violence in the movie with the kangaroo hunt was real and mm-hmm. not dramatized. And that was because they, the film crew followed people in the area that were doing an actual real life kangaroo hunt. Mm-hmm. And I believe from what I've read that the intention of the filmmaker in including that actual, those real depictions of violence were to show like the grotesque, and brutal nature of those types of hunts and mm-hmm. portray them in a negative light rather than promoting them. Yeah, so, not to glorify it. Right. So he consulted with animal rights groups in Australia and when making those decisions. Mm-hmm. So I I trust that the motivation was um, not to promote that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but I mean, that doesn't mean you should watch it if that is upsetting to you. Um. I just wanted to comment that I thought the motivations were good. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating watch. And if this sounds like something you'd be interested in, it would, it's definitely worth your time. It's not a very long film. So most
1: movies from the seventies aren't. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely. I love an older film when they're like an hour and 15 minutes or something. And I'm like, that's the length of an episode of TV now. (laughs)
0: yeah no it's exactly the right amount of time you go on the whole journey you get to the conclusion and you it's a perfect cycle really you cycle exactly back to the beginning I think the final frame of the movie is identical to the first frame
1: cool yeah I had never heard about it until you mentioned it in conversations like maybe a year and a half ago or something and yeah most films that we talk about have at least been on my radar at some point, but not that one at all, so.
0: Oh, yeah. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone else talk about it in real life before, <laughs> or on like a movie pod, because I've yeah. listened to several, and I've never heard anyone else discuss it. Not that I've sought it out, but mm-hmm. just from in casual passing. listening, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's another reason why I wanted to include it, because I think a film, film people would love it. It's it's really something.
1: Yeah, and while you were talking, I could definitely pick up on kind of the parallels that you were talking about between it and The Lighthouse. Mm-hmm. I personally didn't love The Lighthouse as a film, but that's yeah. not to say that it wasn't a well-made film. Like, it just was a very, like, stressful... Uh, um, yeah, symbolic film. It was very, I thought about it for days and days afterwards. And yeah. I would talk to Scott about it. I actually think that was the first movie we went to go see at the local cinema, the independent cinema where we live. Uh huh. Um, and we went to dinner right after and I was like, I don't think I like that movie, but I can't get it out of my head. Like, I've got to talk about this constantly because I am just thinking about so many different things.
0: I remember I went to see it the same day. a different showing because you and Scott invited me. And I was like, I don't think this is a film I want to view with other people.
1: (laughs) I forgot that we invited you.
0: But yeah, there's a lot of symbolism Mm -hmm. in wake and fright as well especially there's a big um spot searchlight that they Mm -hmm. have mounted on top of the car that is like a visual motif that they return to frequently Mm -hmm. and it reminds me so much of how they would intercut the straight on view of the light of the lighthouse and even at like the end toward the end of wake and fright the the doctor and the main character are just like blackout drunk and they're like dancing and wrestling yeah and it's the exact same spiral that rob pat and willem dafoe Mm -hmm. have in the lighthouse and i was like holy shit this cannot be a coincidence this is I have, I'm having so many of the same vibes and, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, I do think they have different ultimate messages and I feel like I can grab onto the ones from Wake and Fright a little bit easier.
1: Yeah, definitely. Did you mention if you purchased this movie on like Amazon or something?
0: We purchased it on YouTube. Okay. It used to be on Shudder for some time. I don't think it is anymore, but... It's, it's worth purchasing it if you feel like it because it's not the easiest thing to find, which is probably another reason why people don't talk about it a ton because I've never seen it on a major streaming service.
1: It says it's free currently on Amazon Prime, so Ooh. potentially... That's great. I'll click on it and just... Oh, okay. So freebie <gasps> oh, coming wait. back for the win. Um, so as of August... 2022 this film is available on amazon prime through their Freevee app just like fringe so you would watch it with ads but it's available for free Uh, if you aren't willing to invest the money into purchasing it i see but that's where you can find it awesome and
0: then i have one final note that i need to acknowledge that i think might be the most wild fact about this film period and it is that this director is the same director of the film Weekend at
1: Bernie's. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting.
0: Which makes absolutely no sense.
1: Yeah, because Weekend at Bernie's is that's it just has like permeated, comedy. But it also has right? like permeated popular culture in a really significant yeah. way.
0: Yeah, but it's you hmm. I can't imagine two more different properties.
1: Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs>
0: Weekend at it's Bernie's is such a weird, so movie, wild, though. yeah.
1: It's uh, also wild. Yeah, you were talking about how he kind of goes to this town and gets stuck because he loses all of his money, but everyone's so hospitable. Mm-hmm. It almost makes me think of, uh, Fae folklore, where when you go into like a fae realm you're not supposed to eat or drink it just kind of makes me think of like tricks of hospitality Yeah, and obviously it doesn't seem like these people are doing it nefariously but how this kind of culture kind of entrapped him because they were so Mm. tricky and hospitable and kind of tricked him into losing all of his money and well no i think
0: you're right because even though it's technically hospitable on the surface, there is still a sinister and threatening undercurrent throughout as well because people get really upset with him if he refuses a drink or Mm -hmm. refuses, uh, you know, to sleep over at someone's house. Like, they get really upset to the point where you think, like, he might be threatened violently. So it's not, like, it's not a...
1: Totally innocent.
0: Yeah, exactly. There is threatening undercurrent throughout.
1: Yeah. I'm just going to read you this little snippet. Uh, It says, Eating or drinking within fairyland is widely accepted to be a way of ensuring that you cannot escape back to your home. You take fairy nature within yourself, and therefore you must abstain from meals while visiting.
0: That's so, so interesting. So that's like just like a,
1: a piece of fairy folklore or fae folklore that I've always been kind of intrigued by. I just, that's the only thing I could think of when you were kind of saying that was like, oh, oh yeah. wow, he's like kind of getting trapped in this place because people have offered him food and drink and hospitable, oh. hospitable uh, things. Wow. Know. Yeah, it sounds like interesting and like there is a lot to digest.
0: I guess my final thing I would say is that don't be turned off by the fact that it's from 1971. It doesn't feel that way. It feels like all of the messages are completely contemporary and Mm -hmm. still resonant. And the sexual politics are surprisingly progressive. Mm -hmm. Um, Donald Pleasance has a really cool, like, small monologue about how he and this woman that he sees openly, casually have the same philosophy on sex, but it's not fair that people think poorly of her for it mm. when they share the same philosophy and no one thinks less of him about it. And mm. I really liked that part. That's a really another great Donald Pleasance monologue <laughs> from the movie. So uh, don't be afraid that it's, I mean, 50 years old at this point. because. Mm-hmm. Uh, A lot of the ideas are just as relevant as
1: ever. All right. So this week I am talking about the Netflix original series that was released on August 5th of 2022. It is titled The Sandman and it's based on Neil Gaiman's comic book series by the same name. The comic books were published by DC and they were published between 1989 to 1996. So it is quite, it's one of his older works compared to his more contemporary novels. So I was a bit shocked to realize how how old they were and that they hadn't been adapted yet. And it was funny because I was doing some, preparatory work, researching kind of the process of how this ended up getting adapted. And the talks for the adaptation actually began in 1991, and it has just finally been adapted in 2022. So that's about a 30-year gap between when the initial talks began. So I thought that this was a fantastic series. I really enjoyed it. It has an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes in just the first couple of weeks, so it's getting pretty widely well-received. I usually am a little bit skeptical about Netflix originals just because I have watched quite a few and they don't always do anything for me. But Neil Gaiman is one of my favorite authors for quite a while now, and... I just particularly like his works, so I had high hopes and I knew that he was an executive producer on this series and that he had a huge hand in all of the decisions that went into the making of this adaptation, so I was really excited to watch it when it finally came out. Um, Does this adaptation that's out
0: now encompass all of the material like is this the complete story or are they anticipating making more
1: the way that it was left it appeared that there would be multiple seasons so i I do not think that we've gone through um a huge chunk of the material but i i didn't specifically look to like what volume they got to but it felt like they covered quite a large um swath of material i would say If I was thinking about it in terms of volumes, the major conflicts would cover probably two or three volumes out of the total nine, I believe. Um, So in, I guess I will just go through like a really basic synopsis and then we can get into some of the subplots a little bit later but I'm gonna try not to spoil too much because I really enjoyed this series and I hope people will take the time to go watch it. It's only 10 episodes um, so it didn't take too much time to get through. Um, But basically the show, the series starts out with a mage in the early 1900s who has lost a son and he decides that he is going to get this spell book from a museum um, curator. And he basically says, like, if you give me this book, I'm planning to summon death and he can bring back our sons or death can bring back our sons that we have lost in this in the war. Um, I believe it was World War One that they lost their sons. Um, so. The guy obviously says, like, do you really believe that you could do this? And hands over the book. Um, so in their attempt to summon Death, they actually capture Death's sibling, Dream. And basically the family of Endless is what they're called. Um, and that encompasses the Entity's Dream, Death, Desire, destiny, and despair. And I believe that that's all of them. Um, and they kind of all have their own realms that they govern. So dream and the realm that we spend the most time in is the dreaming realm. It's all of these different environments and characters um, that dream has created for us to go into when we sleep. And that's also where nightmares live. So when they capture dream, They keep him captive because they realize that he likely has powers that they would benefit from. And Dream also has three items that he usually keeps with him. His sand, which is why he's known as the Sandman. His ruby. And his helm, which basically, it looks kind of like a plague mask. And it's kind of bird-like, and he wears that when he goes out and about in the real world. And they take those three items from him. They're his tools and they contain most of his power. And so he's kept captive for about a century. So when he escapes, it's modern times. And during this time, a lot of the dreams and nightmares from the dreaming have decided to leave the dreaming and walk among the real world. And there's one particularly problematic nightmare um, by the name of the Corinthian, who is a particularly prolific serial killer in our world that we know of him as the Corinthian. And he extracts people's eyes. And that's probably like the scariest part of the, the show. It's not like a horror show or anything, but it does have some creepier undertones to it. So, those nightmares that are on the loose are kind of running wild and wreaking havoc, I suppose. And when Dream finally escapes, he is v- extremely weakened by being kept in this enclosure for a hundred years. He does not communicate with the humans holding him captive. So, they say, if you just give us youth, or if you just give us the power to do X, then we'll let you go. We'll let you go. And he will not respond to them. He doesn't take any of their offers. And um, you kind of hear his internal monologue during this time of, I could give them these things, but those things are not for mortals to wield. Those powers are not for a mortal to have. And So eventually he escapes and he has to first gather back up his tools and rebuild the dreaming, which in his absence has kind of become this dilapidated world and very few of the original dreams and nightmares remain. He has his trusted confidant in that world. Her name is Lucienne. She is the librarian and she kind of keeps records of the dreams that people have and who these people are and kind of knows all of the inner workings of this realm. And in his stead, she has been ruling as best she can, but obviously she doesn't have his powers. And so he begins rebuilding the dreaming and he also has to hunt down the Corinthian, who is the most problematic of these nightmares, as well as all of the other dreams and nightmares that have not stayed in the dreaming. And so he wants to get those back into the dreaming realm? Yes. Yeah. Because a lot of them, he has been gone for a hundred years and a lot of them did think that he just never was going to come back and they felt abandoned. So a lot of them left for perfectly reasonable reasons. Like they were just tired of waiting around in this realm, but the Corinthian is truly like a bad dude. And so that's the general premise of this first season. And Basically, the first 50% of the show is him escaping and hunting down his tools. And then the second half of the show kind of has more to do with the Corinthian. So I really liked the performance of Dream by Tom Sturridge. I haven't seen him act in any other movies or television shows, but he reminded me of a young Keanu Reeves in his performance, Uh like a very quiet stoic like almost matrix type i can't remember his name in the matrix but um neo. neo yes uh he is a very serious individual like dream is meant to be a very serious character he has god-like abilities and thinks of things as a god would think of them and um I think that Tom Sturge's performance really brought that across. Like when he is trapped, he has pride and he has wrath. And like you can feel all of those undertones with the character, but it's such a quiet rage and he ex- is so expressive with his eyes. I just thought that he did such a fantastic job portraying that character in a very immortal kind of way. The Corinthian was played by Boyd Holbrook, and he is the main antagonist. So, um, I also haven't seen Boyd Holbrook act in anything, but he kind of made me think of um, Chris Evans's character in *Knives Out*. It was like a very like I'm a cool guy, and you can relate oh. to me. It was it was so not what I would expect. Effective. It was so cool. Because he basically manipulates people into situations that make them vulnerable, and mm-hmm. then he can uh, kill them. And interesting. And he is so charismatic and interesting. Uh, I really loved his performance as that uh, villain. Patton Oswalt is also in it as a oh, voice. Cool. He voices um, Matthew the Raven and... Dream always has a raven that can go between the dreaming and wherever he is. That way the raven can communicate things to Lucien if he's in trouble or something like that. And I love Patton Oswald. I think he always does such a great job. Um, and he was pretty much the only form of comedic relief in the show. Another performance that I really enjoyed was the performance of Lucifer, who is played by Gwendolyn Christie, who is better known for her role as Brienne of Tarth in the Game of Thrones series and her many roles since then. I've, right. um She did not disappoint in this role, and I really liked that Lucifer was a woman. I thought that that was a really interesting... Um, choice on their part and they had considered having um the actor that played lucifer in the show lucifer oh act for this role um because i believe that that is also weaved into the dc universe and they wanted continuity but um because it's been so long since that show has been off the air um they did not have him act in it when they were deciding casting and stuff like that so
0: I had no idea those were related.
1: Um, So Lucifer was based on Neil Gaiman's portrayal of Lucifer. And that's kind of where the origins of that show came from. I really liked the diversity that they employed in the show. Um, There's people of color playing prominent roles. And they also portray lots of different kinds of relationships in the show. So there's heterosexual relationships and same-sex relationships, same-sex sex. So I think that that was really diverse. They also have a non-binary actor playing Desire. Mason Alexander Park is cast as Desire. And I thought that they were very compelling and mischievous. Uh-huh. Um, Their Dream's little brother oh, in fine. the series. That's how he refers to them. It's kind of an antagonistic relationship. Hmm. So I liked that um, portrayal of that character. But yeah, I thought that it was a really interesting um, casting. And I thought that they cast all of the characters very, very well. Um, There are a few mortals that come into play throughout the series. And what I really liked about the first season is that you're not following the same group of characters through the entire season. You're following Dream through the entire season, but it's almost like vignettes of different mortal characters. I like that It's not like, oh, we're forming our party and we're going to collect you and collect you and collect you and you're going to be with us throughout the whole. I thought it was very different. Um, One of the more prominent and recognizable names in the show is David Thewlis, who is well known for his role as Remus Lupin in the Harry Potter movies. He plays John Dee. And John Dee is one of the most compelling characters in the series. So we're first introduced to John through his mother, who was um, basically the partner to the mage from the very beginning that summoned Dream and was keeping him captive. And she gets pregnant and the mage tells her, you need to abort the child. You're not going to have this child. So she steals the tools that they took from Dream, and runs away and she like sells them for money, has the child and the child ends up being given the ruby. So John D is in possession of the ruby, the rest she sold for money. And basically it, his whole plot line revolves around what happens when a child is raised with the opportunity to have anything they want in the world. If they dream that they want a pony, a pony will show up. When he's an adult, he realizes that his mother has been lying to him his entire life about who his father was and so on and so forth. And he decides that he wants to make a more honest world. And he, his dream and what he wants to Im- impact the whole world with is that no one is allowed to lie anymore. And there is an episode, it's episode five, called 24-7, where he goes to a 24-hour diner and just sits there and orders uh, some coffee and people watches and watches everyone's lives around him devolve as they no longer can lie to their partner about who they've been cheating on them with or that they don't actually love their spouse or that um, they think the waitress is hot. Like it's mm-hmm. just all of these different interactions of like the regulars at a diner, right? All of these people yeah. pretty much are like regulars that have a really good rapport with one another and you just watch their whole lives devolve. And it keeps like repeating in a cycle almost because whenever anyone tries to leave the diner, they turn around like they've just entered and then they go through all of the things once again and they become weaker and weaker in their ability to, to lie. Mm -hmm. They just stop telling little white lies. And then it culminates in huge arguments and just total chaos. And you think that it's just this microcosm of this diner, but then after, um, after they leave the diner, you realize it's been happening to a much larger swath of whatever region we're in. So mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the world or America or whatever, but it it affected a lot more people than just that diner. One thing that I really love is how Dream handles this situation because he basically confronts John D and John D, he eventually defeats John D and takes the ruby mm-hmm. and john d says like please don't hurt me like please don't kill me i don't want to die and dream in essence says it's not your fault that you were given this power and like yes i'm angry i'm angry at the destruction that these people have caused me but i'm not going to be wrathful to towards you just because you thought you were doing a service to the world. Obviously, like John Dee's character could have stopped when he saw huge outbreaks of violence, but he felt like it was just because these people were telling lies, right? Mm-hmm. Just like his mother. And it was just really interesting because it, it always comes back with the dream that like this power was never for mortals to wield. And of course, things went wrong mm-hmm. when mortals were given this power because- mortals can't see the bigger picture that he can after living for centuries and centuries. Uh. So I just thought that that was really well done. I thought it was so interesting. And basically what he does is takes the ruby from John D and takes that power from him. And I assume wipes his memory of what he did and puts him back in bed asleep Mm -hmm. Uh, because it could just be a dream.
0: Yeah. I love that premise. Yeah definitely be into watching that
1: (laughs) and that was the episode where i flipped and realized that i was really going to like this show Um, yeah was the fifth episode because i wasn't super intrigued until that moment and i was like oh i'm hooked it took me a while to get hooked but i'm hooked so yeah i love like the vignette style storytelling that's happening here um you also meet a really interesting mortal named Joanna Constantine, who was in possession of the sand. So the Sandman tracks her down to get his sand back. She is played by Jenna Coleman. And Jenna Coleman is, the what I know her from is she was a companion on Doctor Who, the more recent seasons of Doctor Who. Um, she's been in a couple of other things, but that was like her most memorable role for me okay she was such a cool character because she's basically like a a occult detective is how she's described so she knows how to exercise demons and she basically gets called upon to private investigate little demon cases and she's just such a badass so basically the interaction opens upon her trying to exercise this demon and dream kind of steps in and they have a really interesting story together. Is this her vocation because she has the sand, or is that just incidental? It's not because she has the sand. She couldn't get the sandbag open. She didn't know what it was. She just um, had it. It's just really interesting um, to like see how all of these different character vignettes have been affected and impacted by these items that mortals shouldn't have. And I thought it was just so well done and it was so cool to like watch like what it tells us about humanity and what we would do with that kind of power and how it would be misguided. So we shouldn't it we're protected because we don't have that power, even if we think we have good intentions. Uh uh-huh. um, and then the last character, um, like the last fifty percent of the show pretty much revolves around a character named Rose Walker who is about 21 and she is searching for her brother who was put into the foster care system and like the location of him is sealed. And so she's trying to find him because they lost their mother to an illness and she wants to be his caretaker and do all of that. So she's like trying to find him and She also happens to be something called a dream vortex, which could destroy the world as we know it. I don't fully get that, but then the Corinthian becomes interested in her because if she destroys the dreaming because she's this dream vortex that can cause huge amounts of damage. Then she can also destroy dream who is hunting him down and he's trying to avoid. So um, you kind of see all of the plot lines kind of intersect and she gets like some really cool, interactions with different nightmares and dreams that are drawn to her just because she is this like vortex pulling them closer to her she gets to interact with stephen fry's character oh fun who's he Um, who does he play He plays Gilbert, who is this eccentric man who lives in the attic of the place that she's staying while she's searching for her brother. And he is just goofy. He wears like a little cape around his shoulders and he's got like a little sword that he defends her with when someone tries to mug her. And he's just the cutest uh, Mm. thing. But then this is a spoiler, but you find out that he's actually a dream and he's from the dreaming. Um, And he's so cute. I just love him. He he was so perfect in that mm-hmm. uh, role. Like, I just I love him so much. He um, is a dream. He's perfect. Um, Rose Walker it was a really cool character. Um, she's played by Raw. Um And I don't think that she's been in anything that I've seen, but she had so much, like, character and spunk and independence in the show. And I just thought it was so good. Her storyline trying to find her brother was really good. Um, He's basically been put into this really abusive foster care placement, and he can only escape to these dreams where he's known as the Sandman, and he goes and like saves people, and he's like a superhero. And you find out that an escaped nightmare wants to be a dream. And so she's been like guarding his dreams and coordinating them so that he can experience happiness because his life is so bleak and horrible. And I love this specific plot line because, um, once dream tracks her down, she gets punished and, Um, she says, like, I don't want to be a nightmare. I want to bring people joy. Like, I want to change. And he says, like, no, you were built to be a nightmare. And then at the end, he remakes her as a dream. And she, like, gets to be this beautiful being. And it's just, like, so lovely. And it's about, like, learning about yourself and putting away your pride and that even like this god-like character can change his mind about things. And my other favorite episode of the show is um, episode six. It's called The Sound of Her Wings. And that's our first interaction with the character of Death. And a dream goes to this park and meets Death. And he is like sitting there moping and feeding the pigeons and he feels like he doesn't have purpose now that he's found all of his tools and is rebuilding the dreaming. And he like feels like he's lost his sense of purpose. And she's like, well, why don't you come watch me work today? And so he just kind of follows her around to all of her appointments. And her appointments are people who are passing. And you just get to see this like really lovely depiction of what death should kind of be like. It's not a grim reaper type figure. She goes in and she sits down with people and kind of explains to them that they're dead and it's okay and we're going to move on now and they you get to see like the different ways that people react so the first person she interacts with is quite old and elderly and he's like okay I'm ready to go yeah like there was stuff I still wanted to do but I'm ready and then there's another interaction with a man who has just died And he's on his honeymoon with his wife and he is getting pulled out of the lake behind him. And he's like, no, I'm not ready. Like I'm on my honeymoon. This is not how I'm supposed, this isn't how it's supposed to happen. And so you get to see like how she comforts and provides all of these different people comfort as they go into the afterlife. And I just thought it was like a really beautiful depiction of death and a death figure that comes with kindness and love for the people who are mortals. And she imparts this like piece of wisdom on him saying, I like felt this way once too many, many years ago. But then I realized that my job is to help these people. I am here. I exist because these people need help when they pass on it. I'm not above them. Like this is my duty to serve these people. And she like kind of suggests to dream that like instead of thinking about it as mortals dream because I exist to think of it as I exist because mortals need to dream and they need the hope that dreams can bring in this escape. And I thought that that was such a beautiful uh, way to think about it. And it's, all about like Dream kind of changing the way that he interacts with his own sense of self and his sense of being. And I don't know, it it was just like such a cool experience to kind of watch his own perspective on what his duties are shift. And um, you kind of see him take that lesson with him through the last 50% of the the story. And you really see that kind of solidify at the very end when he's changing that nightmare into a dream, which I thought was just cool. And I think that the idea that even gods can say I was wrong, it really says something about how you can grow at any point in time in your life. And you can always change the way that you think about something to be more positive or like having aspirations is a good thing to have. That's awesome. I love that. Very thought-provoking, I found myself, like, I didn't expect to go into it thinking a lot about humanity and, like, these deeper concepts, and like, changing your perception of yourself as you get older and your duties and stuff, but I found that it was, like, a really deep experience for me, and I was really doing a lot of, like, reflecting on it and thinking about it when I wasn't watching it. I think that's all I've got on that. But yeah, definitely worth a watch. Did you have thoughts on an overlap, or did you want me to go first? If you have one, you can go ahead. I'm still kind of incubating. Yeah, totally. I had a couple that I wrote down while you were talking. Um, The first one, on kind of a more surface level, was I thought it was so interesting that your media had such a long gap between its initial release and its Mm re-release. And I just thought that that was kind of funny, because that's like a almost a 40-year gap, and this was a 30-year gap between its final adaptation. So I thought that that was kind of just a funny coincidence. Um, And then you kind of touched on the fact that in Wake in Fright, um, I don't know why I say it like that, Wake in (laughs) Fright. (laughs) In Wake in Fright, the main character starts out as this kind of um, pretentious, dare I say, person um, that's kind of looking down on the people in this rural community. And throughout his descent into whatever he ends up becoming, he reevaluates that, or or maybe not consciously reevaluates that, but he becomes one of them. It's not like he's other from them. And I think that that kind of overlaps with how Dream, by his interactions with mortals, which he hasn't had very much of, he kind of has learned more about the more human aspects of himself, like friendship and um, putting away your pride to and that you don't always have to be right and stuff like that. So it's not like, but he stops viewing himself as like above people and starts to view himself as serving people and that it is his job to serve the dreamers. And I really liked that. I thought that was a cool shift in his character.
0: Yeah. One thing you brought up toward the end, I think when it was about how, When the humans have access to these specific items that Mm -hmm. aren't meant for them, they don't necessarily mean to do bad things with them, but because humans are flawed in nature and don't have perfect judgment, Mm -hmm. you know, bad things end up happening just in their possession. And I think in a way that's parallel with one of the major themes in Wake and Fright, because I think at its core, it's the film is trying to say that humans are fundamentally flawed mm-hmm. and fundamentally misguided. And the sooner you accept and embrace that, the mm-hmm. sooner you can recognize your true self.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah.
0: so it's similar in that It's acknowledging the fundamentally flawed nature of humanity, but also it kind of reminded me of the diner episode where when you can no longer lie to yourself and Mm -hmm. others about who you are as just a human being, Mm -hmm. you begin to act completely differently. And that's what happens to the main character in Wake and Fright because he's shedding all of these lies that polite society has instilled in him. And he just gets down to his core nature, which is just like violence and brutality and sexuality
1: and yeah,
0: just raw emotion, basically. So when all those lies are gone, that's what he's left with. And also just the fact that in the diner they couldn't leave... And no matter what they did, they kind of just turned around and mm-hmm. returned. And that's exactly like what is happening to the main character in Wake and Fright. Like, no matter what he does, he wakes up back where he started. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like because both of these pieces of media deal with large abstract concepts, mm-hmm. there's a lot of overlap in those really really big ideas mm-hmm. but it's hard to pin it down concretely. Yeah. But um another quote that I didn't talk about earlier but that I wrote down that the doctor played by Donald Pleasant says he says something like discontent is the luxury of the well to do. Mm-hmm. And I took away like from that quote and from the subtext of like the greater conversation that it comes from Um, It has to do with like the main character couldn't understand how anyone in the town was happy to live there Mm -hmm. or could be happy living their lives there and carrying out these same actions every day. And what Donald Pleasance was trying to communicate was that when you are stuck where you are Mm -hmm. because you don't have the means or the money to leave, you have to make the most of it and embrace what you have there locally, or because the only alternative is to be completely miserable. Mm -hmm. And in the film, you see an example of a person who can't bring themselves to embrace their life there, and they are abjectly miserable all Mm -hmm. the time. And that makes me think a little bit of the conversation that death had with dream because Mm -hmm. of the way that death had to sort of reapproach the role that they were serving because they're I assume they're locked into that role that they're playing Mm -hmm. and when they reframed it to themselves as a service to other people, it became much more like a vocation rather than a chore and so they could escape that misery just by accepting that that is their role Mm -hmm. and embracing it rather than rejecting it
1: yeah i love that i think that's a great overlap yeah uh the death episode is honestly fantastic and there's like a a b plot to the death episode as well um that I really loved and I didn't get into it because it was just a little too complicated. But Sure. Oh my god, it's so good.
0: <laughs> yeah, having no concept of the original material, mm-hmm. I I'm impressed with how much depth and meaning it sounds like they they imbued it with. That sounds really excellent. But yeah. There you have it.
1: There you have it. I feel like those were good,
0: good, good overlaps. Wake in fright, wake in fright, wake in fright. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Friend Diagram.